powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Ulrich Denflair. I learned a lot about the world's first AI interlaced exercise bike, and I hope you all did as well. If you've not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 181, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show David Sinclair. David is a musical journalist and has contributed articles for Rolling Stone, Billboard, Q, to name a few, and has authored a few books and holds the esteemed position of music critic for the Times of London. He is also an accomplished musician in his own right and has written the foreword for the new book, Pop Rock Icons, London's Swinging 60s and 70s Revisited by Philippe Margodin. David has some incredible stories of sitting down with some of rock and roll's icons, so let's get him out here to tell those stories. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from his home in London, England, music journalist and musician David Sinclair. David, good morning and good afternoon for you. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's very warm, muggy. It's sort of uh, slightly sunny but and a bit rainy, but just warm, hot. So with the pandemic now coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, it, to be honest, I, I look on it as a bit of a bad dream now. To, I, I can hardly believe we went through it all. For me, it was good and bad. I mean, I... I've always worked from home, to be honest, so that was no different at all. But I've always gone to gigs, and that's been like my lifeblood, five or six nights a week, pretty much my whole life. So as you can imagine, it was an incredible juddering halt to all of that, playing gigs and going to gigs. And I didn't realize how much I missed it, you know, until it, until it was gone. It was a very sudden shock. <laughs> so, you know... Any musician also will tell you that the pandemic did two things. One was it uh, it cost you a lot of gigs, but the other was it gifted you a few songs. So, you know, you kind of take and take with the one hand and you lose with the other. I'm just glad it's all over. I thought it was terrible that the kids were stopped going to school. I thought that was a real terrible mistake. The kids weren't in any danger. They should have kept going to school. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like growing up in the 1960s London, you know, with Beatles, Stones and so much more? Well, that part of it was was pretty incredible. I was born in a place called Gifnock in Scotland, uh, curiously enough, which is a different country from England, but all part of Great Britain. Uh, uh, my dad 
was Scottish, but he moved the family down to London when I was pretty young. Uh, so I grew up, uh, well, firstly in Birmingham, actually, and then in London uh, from about the age of uh, 10. So I consider myself pretty much London bred, if not born. To answer the second half of your question about growing up with the Beatles and the Stones and just all those incredible groups in their pomp, just pushing through all from around, a lot of them around London, some of them from Liverpool, obviously, and further north uh, around England and Scotland, was just an incredible experience. It was the defining element, if you like, of my life then and right through until now, because music then was a very, very important part of young people's lives. It kind of drove all sorts of different things. It drove a social revolution. I don't think it's, ex I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, although we didn't really, we weren't that aware of it at the time. It's just in retrospect, you realize how important it was to you, uh, just these songs that you heard on the radio when you could, you know, which was quite an effort to get to hear them. You were obviously Radio Caroline, I believe, uh, radio off the, anchored off the seas, if I remember correctly. Well, uh, I guess my earliest recollections of listening to the radio were a, a, a program, of, a, a station called Radio Luxembourg, which was... Um, which came from the Duchy of Luxembourg, the country, you know, in Europe. It's a tiny place, and for some reason it seemed to have a, yeah, the ability to put out a radio show, that a radio station that played pop music that reached our shores, our ears, our radio stations. And that was really the first, I think, that my entire generation got to hear of any music uh, other than what we'd call light music or light entertainment, uh, the, the sort of the establishment sort of music. But pop music and rock and roll, started out from Radio Luxembourg. Britain had a lot of regulations about what you could listen to on the radio, what radio stations could play. It was a thing called needle time, if you please, whereby radio stations such as the BBC and any other stations were severely limited into how much recorded music they were allowed to put on because it was felt that this would, that the, the advent of recorded music would put real, would put musicians out of work, you know, it was, a, <laughs> and so it was restricted. But we eventually got a situation where uh, some enterprising people set up these radio stations on boats just outside the territorial waters of Great Britain. So they could get round the legal restrictions of playing records, but they could broadcast nevertheless to the, to the audience on, on the mainland. And so we had, a ra we had radio stations. The first was Radio Caroline. Then we had a one called Radio London, Big L. That was my favorite. Uh, and then there was a whole bunch of them came along and they, they, they lasted for quite a few, a few years anyway. And then eventually the BBC wised up and the, the government realized there was no way they could hold this business of needle time and restricted playing of music. And they set up what became Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, Radio 4. And in 1967, I think this was, as late as that, they actually... <clears throat> freed up the whole broadcasting system and we could hear these bands on the radio you know now, the first record i heard on radio one was night of fear by the move a british band and i still remember it to this day you know it was like it seemed like an act of freedom that you could you were allowed to listen to this on the radio on on bbc mainstream radio that's amazing at what age did you find that you had a uh, a knack for writing <laughs> well, that's a good question. I got very good grades at my very early on, to be honest with you, Derek. Uh, when I was at school, 
I, I was not that much of a great student and I could uh, just about get away with my maths and, you know, the sort of things you had to learn. But I was always very drawn to writing. I always enjoyed creative writing. I always got good grades, even when I was a youngster. Um, my dad was a very good writer. He wrote for um, he wrote for local newspapers and so forth in uh, Scotland when he was uh, well, actually, right through to when he was retired. He, he always had a sort of sideline in writing. He was a very, very clever. He was very literate. He was very smart. So maybe some of that rubbed off. You know, maybe the apple, the seed didn't fall too far from the tree. I was lucky, anyway. What brought you to the Times of London? Uh, well, I got the gig at the Times of London, and this is a good lesson for life, really, from just being in the right place at the right time. I mean, I would say pure luck. I mean, I did work hard. And, you you, you, you know, there's always a relationship between being in the right place at the right time. What is it? One of those, I think it was a golfer. Was it Gary Player or somebody said, the harder I practice, the more lucky I get. <laughs> and I think there's an element of that. You know, I scraped around. I, I did a lot of rough old you know, reviews for rough old magazines and what would now be called fanzines, I think. I mean, magazines and publications that didn't pay anything and you just went along and you did the review for the sake of getting the ticket and all the rest of it. But I was just asked out of the blue by, I, I, I made a connection with a deputy editor of the arts page at the Times. And he said, oh, you write about, you know about rock music. And I said, yeah, I do a bit. I was writing at the time for a magazine called Kerrang. Um, which was a successful magazine in this country. I don't know if it, it's uh, all that well-known in America, but it's a sort of heavy metal magazine, really, a specialist heavy metal magazine. And he said, oh, you know a bit about rock music? Well, Meatloaf is playing at the Hammersmith Odeon tomorrow. Would you like to go and review it for us? Because we don't have any rock critics on the Times. This was in 1986. You know, it still hadn't really... Rock music was considered a bit of a poor relation on those broadsheet sort of sensible newspapers. They didn't take it very seriously, but they were just beginning to. They were just thinking it's about time we got someone in. So I said, sure, I, I would be very happy to do that. So I went to the show. I wrote a review. I took a hard copy in to the newspaper at eight o'clock in the following morning, which is what you had to do. You had to type it out and, um, <clears throat> and handed it in. And then the next day it was in the newspaper. And that was the only... Uh, that was the only, what would you call it, an audition, an interview, uh, any sort of a process of that sort that I ever did. And then he said, oh, yeah, that worked all right. Well, let's do another one. So I did another one. And from that point on, I became de facto, after a couple of six months or so, however long it was, the, 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 the chief pop and rock critic of the Times of London, which, of course, is a fantastic position to hold. I mean, a very, very privileged status in the world of music journalism, although it wasn't really held to be i was just the, the person that he asked to write the review that was the, the long and the short of it mm. now you've contributed articles to rolling stone billboard q magazine etc are there any articles you've written that stand out among the others as you know some of the best that you've ever written <laughs> you're asking me to blow my own trumpet pretty firmly here aren't you Derek? a little um, bit it's a uh i i guess there's uh, you know you take pleasure you try to keep a pretty even head about these things and you sort of move along you know it's best not to go back too much over the old stuff but I suppose the, the one that sticks out in my mind and that, which has subsequently been very much gained more attention than a lot of them was the time I spent a whole day with David Bowie uh, wandering around London which was really an incredible experience and I wrote that up for Rolling Stone it was supposed to be a cover story for some reason 
related to record company politics or something. His record company in America, I think, went bankrupt the week it was supposed to be on the cover. And for some reason, that meant it didn't go on the cover. It was it was in the magazine. It was the longest non-cover feature they ever ran, I think. And Bowie was an incredible character, you know. At that time, he was kind of slightly out of fashion. Uh, it was in the early 90s. And um, he was... You know, he it was just before he became an, a national treasure and after he'd been the sort of coolest thing on the planet. So he was slightly in between those two points of his career. And he was very keen to get a good hearing. You know, he really wanted to get the, the past down and documented. And so he took me round all over London, all over the places that he'd been when he was coming up as a as a as a wannabe star and the places he'd been when he did his best work when he did Ziggy Stardust and we went to the Hammersmith Odeon we sat on the stage and he told me how he felt at that time I mean it was like a dream come true you know you couldn't imagine I mean a lot of these interviews are done very very briefly you know you go into a hotel room you get half an hour or 40 minutes and you get the stop story you know but this was something else he had his diaries out we went and had lunch in a little hotel just me and him in a hotel room. The, they sent up room service and we went through his old diaries, you know, checking out what he was doing, when he was doing it. And it was the most incredible story. And it's been reprinted quite a few times. And so I was very proud of that. Uh, that would be the one I'd take, I think. That's amazing. That's that's true. Amazing. You know, it's it's funny. I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this little tidbit in there. You know, my father, not the warmest man in the world, but when I when my father passed, he bequeathed me all his LPs. And he had four copies of Ziggy Stardust, four copies of Aladdin. He had three copies of, you know, just all of his records. And I went through and I'm like, why does this man have so many copies of the same album? And when I pulled him out, he had played them so much that the, the they'd worn through. And so he just went and just bought it, but he didn't throw them away. So I'm just sitting there like, I, that's how much, when my, when he died, when, when Bowie passed away, it was the only time I ever saw my father upset over, over a famous person passing away. And I didn't understand that until finally when Bowie, when my father passed, when I finally saw all the records. My father was a huge Bowie fan. So, oh, well. yeah. Well, he was a hell of a character. And he was a very, uh, to me, he was very, very generous. He was, a, uh, uh, you know, we walked all around the, the place and he didn't cause it. He, obviously, he caused it. When people knew who he recognized him, they were all, you know, jaws would drop and, you know, people would smile and wave and put their thumbs up to it. But it was no problem at all. He was very, very easy, cheerful and uh, just a great guy and, and generous. Generous is the word I'd use. That's amazing. Now, you've been incredibly fortunate to have met and seen some rock and roll legends. And I have a small list and I want to name three off that list. Can you tell the story of how you met this person? And we'll start with what I consider to be rock and roll royalty, and that's Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Wow. Well, I, uh, yeah, me too. They're, they're, if there's any one band that really, to me, is uh, the biggest band and the best band and the band that is at the core of the story of rock and roll, it's got to be the Rolling Stones. And those two, obviously, are at the core of the band. I've been very lucky. I've met Jagger several times, interviewed him, I guess three or four, two or three times anyway, uh, and and Keith Richards as well, uh, two or three times. Um, I guess the, the one that sticks out in my memory as much as any of them was when I went to Canada to, um, just before they were starting the uh, rehearsals for the uh, Voodoo Lounge tour, um, <clears throat> which I'm thinking must have been the end of the 80s, the start of the 90s. I'm a little bit vague on the dates there. And uh, 
So uh, it was to do a, a complete, uh, you know, I talked to each of them individually. And this, I think, was for an, a story in Q magazine, if I can remember correctly. Uh, and um, and I and I kind of joined in their little entourage. They they set up camp in a in a little in a school in uh, Toronto, uh, where they, which they'd become quite fond of Toronto, uh, ironically, because that's because Keith had had to spend so much time there waiting to be tried for various drug offences. <laughs> they'd actually grown to rather like the city, and they could be sort of put down sort of certain put down a certain degree of roots there so they had this place that they used they used it before it was a school uh, and it was on three or four floors and on one level they'd have the sort of recreation area and jagger had a little area where he did his his bar work you know in the a mirrored room where he would do his exercises and then the middle area would be a catering area and then it'd be a recreation room with a billiard hall or some snooker table and then at the top i think if i'm remembering right there was a rehearsal area you know where they just had their music their equipment set up and they rehearsed for like two or three weeks to get all their music into place and i went in and i i sat in on a stones rehearsal you know and my god it was something else you know they they just sort of well what are we going to play you know well how about um we do crazy mama you know it's a sort of a rather obscure track on black and blue and and they said, Ron, how do, what are the chords? How does it work? And he pulled out this book, you know, The Rolling Stones Complete. It was like a, a book that was had all the music of the Stones songs. And, and Ron sort of thumbed through it and he found the song. He said, oh, yeah, here we go. What keys it in? And they kind of stumbled into it like any old rock and roll band. You wouldn't, you'd be amazed just to think that these guys, these Olympian guys, that, and that is how the Stones have kept going because they've never... They'd never drifted too far from those moorings. They were, it was like me with my band in a studio in London in, where we were rehearsing. We're trying to get a song that we haven't played for a while and we're trying to figure out how to remember it. That's how it was. And they, and they were quite relaxed and they were quite genial and they just played it. And they actually didn't even play that well at that point. It was like, how does it go, you know? And so to me, it was, a, um, and obviously it was fantastic to talk to them all and interview them and, and get, to, to get to grips with them. I mean, Jagger just has the most phenomenal energy as, a, as an individual. When you engage with Jagger in a situation, he's like a live wire. It's unbelievable. Keith is kind of a little intimidating. He's so cool and he's, his eyes are so jet black. And sometimes he just gives you a look and you think, yeah, we'll leave that where we've left it. You know, and that's <laughs> he's totally authority and he's got a real... You know, he is rock and roll, as they say. And Charlie, Charlie was always very nice, genial guy. And Ron's Ron, you know, he's he's the, the spirit of rock and roll. He's the he's the absolute epitome of it. I love Ron. Uh, so to me, what you can't you can't get much more higher up the chain than the Rolling Stones. That's rock and roll royalty. Someone I know met Paul McCartney once and said it was like meeting Mozart. And if it, if meeting the Stones would be like meeting Beethoven, I think that for me, if that was be the thing. Yeah, I guess I, I I haven't met Paul McCartney. I, I've been I've said hello to him, but not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us about meeting David Gilmore. That's another gentleman that I would I would just die to 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 know how you met him. Well, David Gilmore. Now, there's an interesting thing. David Gilmore, I met really really early on in my gilded career, if you like, when it wasn't so gilded. When I was scraping around, I was I was writing for a magazine called Guitar Heroes, which was a spin-off magazine of another magazine. It was a very very niche publication not the sort of thing that you would expect to be able to get hold of david gilmore to to talk to 
And indeed, when I went to the Pink Floyd press office at EMI or wherever it was, and I said, look, I'm writing, I want to do an interview with David Gilmore. They virtually laughed me out of the room. You know, they said, I'll get out of here. David Gilmore's not going to do that anyway. So, but somehow, I can't remember quite how, I just managed to blag somehow an email address. Well, no, it was pre-email. It must have been a phone number or some kind of a connection, some way of getting a message through to him that if he was around to do an interview, I would love to do it. And the next thing I know, he phones me up and he says, David, uh, it's David Gilmore here. Uh, I hear you're writing for Guitar Heroes, I think it's called. You know, I mean, obviously, he'd never heard of it. And he said, I'll happily do an interview if that's what you'd like to do. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. So I said, yeah, of course. And he said, don't tell the PR. He won't like it. Just, just come and we'll do it. He said, I'm going to be in such and such a place in Notting Hill two, in a week's time. If you meet me there, we'll do it. Don't tell anybody else, you know, because they'll stop me, you know, like the management or anyone. And, he, and I went and I met him. And we sat, he sat on the floor in this little kind of scruffy, scruffy little hotel or in um, Notting Hill Gate. And he's had a, he had a guitar in his hand, which he was unplugged, uh, just a strat of some sort of thing. And he just kind of played away in it. And I just asked him a bunch of questions. I was pretty green. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just a fan. And, uh, and we talked for about an hour like this. And he was so nice. And he was so gracious. And he was so kind. And, and actually, he, did, he wanted the chance to, to talk about his music. And he, he was in the, the stage when Pink Floyd was so um, kept so clearly away from this. was like the early 80s. Uh, and so Pink Floyd were an absolutely massive band. They didn't do interviews. You know, nobody did interviews with Pink Floyd at that point, unless you were very, very, you know, maybe the big names at Rolling Stone would have done so. But he really wanted a chance to talk about stuff. You know, he really enjoyed it. He just talked about writing songs with Pink Floyd, how he'd started and how he played guitar, his views about playing guitar and all this. Anyway, um, when I became more successful, I was writing for The Times later on and everything. I did interview him and I interviewed Nick Mason and all, you know, the whole lot, Rick Wright on tour in America and all the rest of it, but it never really kind of, and obviously I had that basis of he knew me. He would always be friendly to me. He was the nicest guy. He is the nicest guy. He's still around. And uh, I, I just, I could never work out why he did it. It was, I was just so thrilled and, and it was just a nice, uh, very nice encounter. And I still regard him as one of the most, my, my most fondly remembered uh, rock star encounters. Mm-hmm. I got to see him and uh, Richard Wright play on the um, Remember the Night, oh, sorry, Remember That Time uh, tour and did Echoes. And it was one of the greatest moments, I think, probably of my music, of seeing any concert, I think, ever was that moment. Because I was too young, obviously, to see the original lineup. But uh, yeah, it was definitely one of the greatest moments of my life to see that, uh, see them do that song together. Right. Uh, well- Gilmore is, an, Gilmore is an incredible musician and his solo shows are fantastic. Absolutely. 100% agree. Um, the now late Tina Turner. But uh, well, Tina Turner, I didn't, you know what, I, I, I did, it was a pretty, this was one of those occasions where I would say the reverse is true of, of what I've just said about with David Gilmore or anybody else. This was one of the most rushed and least you know if you like superficial encounters I, I i was she was there was something had fallen through or something had gone wrong and so she had to just quickly get an interview done for the times and but she wasn't she was totally busy she was absolutely run off her feet i was the last guy to be shoved into her itinerary it wasn't a very welcome addition she'd been talking to 
people, I don't know if it was exactly Oprah Winfrey, but someone like that in America, she was doing a whole afternoon of this stuff. And I was shoehorned in between some guy in America and Terry Wogan in London. And I was, it was in a car and then we were driven to the studio and we sat down. She was exhausted. She was nervous. She didn't really want to do it. I was pretty inexperienced. This was about 1987, I guess, something like that. She was about the biggest star in the world at that time. I mean, pretty much the biggest female star. Um, perhaps Madonna, I don't know. And um, so it was a kind of fraught experience. I mean, I don't think she really enjoyed it very much. I listened to the tape the other day because obviously, sadly, since she died, I, I had to write a, a story about my meeting. You know, I had to go over all this again. And she starts talking on my tape. Her voice is so high. It's like she's so nervous and obviously stretched that she doesn't, you wouldn't believe it was her. And then gradually she gets a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, relaxed. And we talk a bit about this and a bit about that. And I, I don't know. It was a difficult situation. It was the sort of situation that is where journalists and stars, it's very hard sometimes to, to make any connection. You know, it's a very artificial situation interviewing someone like Tina Turner. You know, she's got certain things she wants to tell you and certain things she doesn't. You've got certain things you're trying to find out, and certain things that you know she doesn't want to talk about. And you've got half an hour. You know, it's terribly unnatural. You, you know, you can't be a best friend to anyone in half an hour. And... Uh, so I'd say that was one of my least, um, what's the word? You know, it was one of the more superficial encounters I had with, with rock royalty, but she certainly was that. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with David Sinclair. Masters should take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. I'm Billy Dees and host of the self-titled podcast, The Billy Dees Podcast. We are primarily an interview and a commentary-based podcast featuring authors and creators talking about their craft, advocates for community issues, and myself and an array of co-hosts discussing current events. There's no partisan ranting and raving going on here, just great content. You can find The Billy Dees Podcast on your favorite platform and on Twitter at Billy Dees. Thank you, and I hope you listen in. Hello Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duval Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality 
you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. X Radio X, we are two ex-college radio guys who became ex-professional radio guys who are now professionally guys in other professions. Tune in as we discuss music. Okay, right there. Let's just stop right there <laughs> for a moment. That up. We don't. All right. Let's just break down those three things. I feel like we're playing one of these things is not like the other, but the answer is every single one of these things is not like the other. That's right. The state of radio today. In the year 2525. Oh, I love that you're singing. You're welcome. And anything else that pops in our heads. See, you're, you're stuck in an infinity loop if you don't take the pill, because then you'll never know to take it again. <laughs> It's not like hip-hop, good, marmalade, eh, spick and span, great for cleaning. He didn't say anything. Even if we come back, things will never be the same again. Dun, 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 dun. It's the final <laughs> countdown. I don't know that I, I can't, I can't with confidence say that I want it that way because that would mean I know what that way is. X Radio X, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 181 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with music journalist and musician David Sinclair. Now, you are an accomplished musician in your own right. How does playing music influence how you write articles about musicians and the music scene? Well, that's a very good – that's a very – it's a good and difficult question to answer. Um, the relationship has changed a lot over the years, i got to be honest. I think it's a very awkward thing to be um to be a rock 
journalist and certainly a critic a rock critic let's say if you separate that from being a journalist but the thing is sort of intertwined a little bit certainly the way i've had to do it i've been i've been the person that goes to these concerts and passes judgment if you like for our readers in the newspaper at a very high profile way well you you don't have to say very much that's uncomplimentary to upset people in the music world and what I found was that being a musician you, it is very much you're on that side of the fence or are you on the side of the fence of the person who's going to be criticizing, criticizing the musician or at least in a position to criticize the musician. And these are two very separate worlds, I find. Uh, you, you know, uh, it's not like being a book reviewer and an, and an author where you're expected, to, you know, authors are expected to review other authors and other books. and. And I think it's that whenever my writing's been going well, my music has been not going so well. That's about the way of it. And I had to really take a bit of a, you know, in order to, I started off as a musician. That's where I began. And I, I was signed with various bands to, um, to CBS records in the 70s. And, um, but when I became a journalist and a music journalist and a writer, I just had to take a break from it. I had to really just concentrate on that. There's only so much time as well. You know, you can only do so much. And it's only in later years that I've come back to being a full-time, if you like, musician, as full-time as you can be these days. Um, and I found that it, that it took me a while to, to, to gain the trust, if you like, almost, of, of, to, be, to be plausible as a, as a full-time musician. It's, it's hard to do. You know, some people have done it. Not many, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think who now. I mean, someone like Chrissy Hind, for instance, started as a, as a journalist, but became very much a, a successful musician. I think Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys did the same thing. Obviously, I'm not I'm nearly on that, that kind of a level, but mostly they've renounced their journalism to become a musician. I mean, you don't, it's very hard to keep the two going par in parallel. Mm. I want to talk about the book Pop Rock Icons, London sing Singing 60s and 70s Revisited. How will you approach to write the foreword for the book? Well, editor of Supernova Publications, Cheryl Robson, was assembling the book. And she, uh, I've worked on a couple of things with her in the past. And she is a, uh, she's a very industrious and... Um, influential person in, in in the London publishing scene and she asked me to do it um she was actually doing the translation of it it was written in French the book by Philippe Margotin and um she just felt it needed some kind of a foreword or some kind like something from someone who had been around and was also from the London from from the UK and so she asked me to do it and I, I was obviously very happy to do it for her that's amazing. Uh, for my listeners who are not familiar with the book, can you give them a basic breakdown of what the book covers? Well, it's basically it's a it's a photographic record of the uh, of the incredible explosion of uh, music and social social trends that occurred in the sixties and seventies in, I suppose, what you'd call swinging London. Or, I mean, it was it, it was the UK really. It wasn't just London. I mean, the Beatles and and Others came from all over the country, but I suppose the, the heart of it was in London, you know, Queen and the Stones and the Yardbirds and all the rest of it. And also a lot of the big venues were in London at the time. So um, 
but you had um it's basically a photographic record with with some text um and it's just a sort of um celebration i think of that era there's some very interesting photographs it's not the it's not not obvious photographs there's some lots of backstage stuff and stuff that i hadn't seen before i'm just looking at a picture of them in the swimming pool them the van morrison group from the from the 60s from ireland you know there's a picture of of traffic on a sitting on a mini you know I, they're just the very it's very evocative of that era and i think if you if you were around in that time you'd find it a great nostalgia trip and if you weren't a big an eye-opener you know there's lots of very uh positive reviews uh on the website and elsewhere um of people who just found the photographs and the text absolutely fascinating an insight into an era that really was the big bang of contemporary music i mean it still reverberates to this day it's amazing uh, Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What do you say to him? Well, just that, I suppose. I think that's very, uh, I'd say, wow, I'd say just stick with it, really. Uh, I think you, you, I did a lot of things that I would think it was good to try out. I, I wish sometimes I'd just been a little more stuck to one track on on you know throughout it's hard to say i'd say i'd say keep i'd say i don't i don't think i would tell myself to do anything an awful lot different you know i i was quite lucky um so it could have it could have worked out it could have worked out bad but uh, it worked out okay so i think i'd say just keep going <laughs> all right so what is next for david next um, well, we've got we're doing some shows. I've got my band, the David Sinclair Four. Uh, we've just got a, a new uh, a record out called Apropos Blues, which is a, an album uh, of of original songs. Uh, well, and one Chuck Berry song. So there's uh, nine originals and one cover, and uh, it's a kind of post-pandemic record of uh, tremendous uh, relevance and um, passion. And uh, so we're doing some shows to uh, to to try and sell a few copies of that and also to uh, have a good time. We're doing a show, uh, I don't know when this is going to go out, but we're playing at uh, a thing called the Phoenix Festival uh, tomorrow, which is a, a charity event in in London, Richmond, London, at the Crawdaddy Club, which is where the Rolling Stones started out in 1962 or three. 1963, the Rolling Stones started there. And that's where we're playing uh, tomorrow. So it's uh, we're, we're still... I'm living the dream. It's <laughs> amazing. So as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. You know, what do you do for fun and to relax? Uh, I'm always relaxed. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I play tennis. That's my, uh, that's my great stress buster, I guess. I, I, I play competitively. We, we've had, I had a good match uh, last week, which uh, we won uh, against a club in Uxbridge. Which is a down the road a piece, uh, and um, I cycle, uh, and I spend time with my family. I like uh, I, I've got a son and a daughter who are both very dear to me. So uh, I think that's it. Am I interrupting Wimbledon right now? You are. We're right in the middle of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think all the British men have already gone out, uh, but I think we've got one female contender, Katie Bolter, who's still going. 
Um, and I'm going to Wimbledon uh, on Monday, the day, uh, this next Monday, the, the second Monday of Wimbledon, I'll be there. Uh, so hopefully see, see some of the great, great players then. That's amazing. Uh, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Well, I think the answer to that is to go to my, uh, my website, which is called David Sinclair 4, F-O-U-R.com. And if you get to that point, you'll find links to everywhere else. So the Spotify page, the Facebook, the Instagram, and all the rest of it. Spotify, I'm, I'm listed as David Sinclair only because I was a trio before I was a four and all the rest of it. But you'll find on the Spotify all my tracks, all my records, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you like some of them. That would, that would be great. All right. David, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? I've heard your show before, so I'm kind of prepared for this one. I, I guess I'm going to say, well, a bit like you asked me where I, what I would say to my, my younger self. I think I would say to the people of Earth, keep going. Because you know what? It's, it's easy to start things. And it's actually very easy to stop. Well, unless you shouldn't have started in the first place, you know, like alcohol or cigarettes or whatever it is. But if it's something that is effortful and meaningful, it's it's pretty easy to start, but it's quite hard to keep going. You know, that's the point. There comes a point always where you think, oh, you know, I think this that's enough. Let's just give up. It's a very, and I think it's, it's, good to keep going if you possibly can uh i mean obviously there's a time for everything you have to stop at some point but um but don't stop too soon you know just 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 persist people often say to me you know we're a young band what's your what's your advice and i just say just keep playing that's what else can i tell you amazing the book is pop rock icons london swinging 60s and 70s revisited available on amazon barnes noble or wherever books are sold david Thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. This has been a great honor for me. And for me, Derek, too. And uh, Good luck with your podcast and your show. It's uh, it's very impressive. I, I've enjoyed listening to previous episodes, and I'll keep an eye on it in the future. Oh, cheers very much. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 181. I want to thank David for taking the time to come on the show. What a great guest. And I want to wish him the best for his future. You should really check out his tunes on Spotify. He is really good, folks. Okay, tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have. So please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there with everything without a logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, take this opportunity to make a small donation to your local animal shelter. Shelters are desperately in need of supplies, and even a bag of dog food or some canned cat food is always appreciated. Help those who look after fostering our furry friends, and if you can, consider adopting a new best friend. Now, I'm not a cat person personally, 
but a dog makes a wonderful companion. We have three, and they are our world. But remember, they are a huge commitment. But if you take a chance, you will be forever thankful that you did. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.